Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out and his hand, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcia. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad that you're with us, especially if you're new or just visiting. Good to be together today. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Genesis this summer, and for the past few weeks, we've been following the story of Abraham and his family. And uh, what we're seeing is that Abraham and his family are quite a mess, right? Um, in fact, if you've been paying attention, every single family we've learned about is a dysfunctional family. Uh, if you think your family is messed up, just read Genesis and you'll feel better. Like everyone in this book needs therapy desperately. And what's crazy is that it's not just Genesis, it's really the entire Bible. Um, sometimes we talk about trying to have a biblical marriage 
or a biblical family, which is great, but have you ever noticed that in the Bible, no one seems to have a biblical marriage or a biblical family? Um, like, can you think of any model marriages in scripture? Uh, any picture-perfect families? Like, we get a few glimpses here and there, but pretty much every family in the Bible is dysfunctional. Uh, Adam and Eve started pretty strong. Genesis 1 and 2, they're doing it right, but then by chapter 3, the whole thing falls apart. So I want to remind you again that not everything that happens in the Bible is biblical. Or in other words, there's a difference between what's prescribed by the Bible and what's described by the Bible. Some passages are prescriptive, others are descriptive. Meaning some passages prescribe something about how we ought to live as followers of Jesus, and other passages simply describe something that happened, just part of the story. So it's important to remember that these pictures we get in Genesis of messed up marriages and dysfunctional families are almost always descriptions of what happened rather than prescriptions of what we should do. So. Make sense? Okay. So now that we've got that, we can talk about where we are in the story of Abraham and his family. So if you remember, God has promised Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a son, and they would become the parents of a great nation. And after a while, they still don't have any kids, and so Abraham gets with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and she bears him a son named Ishmael. But that was their solution, not God's. And so God kept his promises to Abraham and Sarah and gave them a son by the name of Isaac. Uh, we looked at some of that story last week. So now Abraham has two sons. And then at the beginning of Genesis 25, we're told that after Sarah dies, Abraham marries another woman named Keturah, and they have six more sons. So here's what the family tree looks like so far. Father Abraham did indeed have many sons, and it's through these eight sons that the earth is populated with all the various nations and tribes. But God chooses one of these eight sons, Isaac, the one born of Sarah, to carry the family line of his blessing. And so today, as we come to Genesis 25, we find Isaac all grown up and married to a woman named Rebecca, and they've been struggling to conceive but then, just like he did for Isaac's parents, God answers their prayers and Rebekah becomes pregnant. And in verse 22, um, we find out pretty early that Rebekah sensed that there was something different about this pregnancy. It says the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Okay, so at this point, she doesn't know that she has twins. She just knows that there's a lot going on down there. And since there are no ultrasounds, she prays and asks God what's happening. Um, any of you ladies ever carried twins before? Okay, did you ever ask, why is this happening to me? <laughs> I assume, I can't imagine having one person grow in my body, let alone two. Um, so she's asking God, what's going on? Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Okay, so this is when Isaac and Rebecca find out they're gonna have twins and that the wrestling she feels in her womb is just a foretaste 
of the conflict that will define the relationship between these two kids, not just for the rest of their lives, but for generations to come. Again, no model families in the Bible. In verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her worm, womb. <laughs> womb. <laughs> the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Okay, so the first twin pops out, and he's red and covered in hair, which isn't normal. Um, the only thing I can picture is that she gave birth to baby Elmo. <laughs> Like, that's a surprise, uh, a little red Wookiee or something. And then verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Jacob means heel grasper. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So now the family tree looks like this. Abraham has two grandsons through Isaac and Rebekah, and we'll find out that he actually has a bunch of other grandkids through his other sons, but the main storyline of the Bible flows from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll see those three names grouped together and repeated all throughout the Scripture. Ultimately, even Jesus himself would say that his father is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. And so, for all of their faults and flaws and failures, God uses this messed up family to bring about the Savior of the world. So maybe he can work with your family too. That's uh, the first part of this passage. Here's what happens next. Verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. And so Jacob and Elmo grow up, and they turn into two pretty different types of men. Um, and the descriptions here are really meant to be a little bit over the top. So you might say, Esau is a manly man who drives a big old pickup and likes hunting and fishing and watching NASCAR and drinking bush light. He's that kind of guy, right? And then Jacob, on the other hand, is a great indoorsman. He does yoga and scrolls Pinterest for fun recipes, and he loves talking with his friends and sharing a bottle of rosé. So forgive me for the stereotypes, but that is what the author's trying to do here. Describe these two brothers, not just as polar opposites, but as almost cartoonish caricatures. Um, and it gets even worse. Verse 28, Isaac who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So to pile on top of it all, Esau, the rugged, hairy hunter, is his dad's favorite because his dad likes to eat meat. And Jacob, the well-manscaped little brother, is a total mama's boy, right? And Rebekah likes him the best, okay? So these are the two characters in our story. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew... Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Okay, so Jacob's in the kitchen, cooking a pot of soup. Esau barges in from hunting, acting like he's starving to death. He smells what Jacob's got on the stove and says, give me some of that red stuff. That's literally what he calls it, red stuff. In Hebrew, red is Edom. 
Okay? So the author here is giving us a little heads up that the events that are about to go down in the next few minutes are going to define Esau's life and legacy for generations to come. That the red hairy man wanted a bowl of red stuff, and from this point on, he's going to be known as Red. And his descendants are going to be known as the Edomites, the red people. So what's about to happen here has serious long-term consequences. Jacob sees how hungry his brother is, and he seizes it as an opportunity to take advantage of him. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? So what we need to know is to have the family's birthright was a really big deal. Um, first, financially, the child with the birthright was entitled to the lion's share of the family estate. The one with the birthright would inherit two-thirds of the family's money and property, and the other third would be divided amongst the other siblings. And so the birthright meant money. Secondly, the birthright meant power. Whoever held the birthright would become the new head of the household when the father died. So they would become the new patriarch, and they would control the fate and the destiny of the entire family. And so not only did the birthright give you money, but also power. Having the birthright was a big deal. So how did they decide which child got the birthright? Simple. It was the firstborn. Um, whoever was born first got the birthright. How many firstborns in the room? Okay. This sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Uh, I'm the oldest of four. I see no problem with this system. Um, makes sense to me. What if your twins are, are firstborn? Um, well, then it's the one that comes out first, right? So this is why the author told us that it was Esau who came out first. But we're also told that Jacob came out literally just seconds behind him, gripping the heel of his firstborn brother. And so the picture is, from the day they were born, it's like Jacob has been grasping to get ahead of his brother. And now, after all these years, he finally gets his chance. So he tells Esau, sure, you can have as much soup as you want. Just let me have the birthright, and it's all yours. And Esau, like an idiot, says, well, I'm about to starve to death, and a birthright isn't going to do me any good if I'm dead. So in verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Right, so Jacob's plan works. He cons his brother into giving him his birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup. So why on earth would Esau agree to this? Um, was he literally starving to death? Like maybe he really was minutes away from dying and this was a life or death situation. Or maybe he like had an intellectual disability and he was just too naive or simple to understand how bad of a deal this was. Like, if you took a one-year-old kid and gave them a choice between a check for $100 million and a blueberry, what would they take? They would take the blueberry every single time, right? So maybe this is uh, what we see in Esau. He's just that simple. 
But the text actually tells us the reason Esau did this. Back in verse 34, Esau despised his birthright. So it's not saying that he despised his birthright after the fact because he had given it away. It's saying the reason he gave it away in the first place was because he despised it. Meaning, he didn't consider it valuable. He saw it as something that wasn't that big of a deal and didn't matter that much. And the point that the story is making is, man, was he wrong. He clearly makes a terrible decision here. And the story is told in such a way that anybody who reads it would recognize that Esau, even if he was manipulated and taken advantage of by his younger brother, makes one of the worst decisions of all time here, right? He gives up his birthright for a bowl of red stuff. He tears up the $100 million check and eats the blueberry. Now, of course, it's easy to uh, look at him and, and laugh, but we would also do well to look at ourselves and to see if we've ever done anything like this. So let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever made a short-term decision without thinking through the long-term consequences? Have you ever gotten your priorities mixed up and been careless with someone or something that mattered to you? Have you ever gone with the flow and done the easy thing instead of the right thing? Or have you ever chosen what felt good in the moment only to regret it later? Of course you have. So have I. That's the point of the story. All of us are Esau. Which is why this story was passed, around, passed down amongst the Israelites for generations. The elders would share this story with their community around the campfire. Parents would tell this story to their kids when they tucked them in at night. Pastors would preach this story to their congregations. And we actually have an example of this in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament. Most Bible scholars think that Hebrews wasn't originally written as a letter or as an epistle, but it was actually a sermon. And in this sermon, the preacher uses the story of Jacob and Esau as a warning not to choose the easy thing over the best thing. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. This is so interesting. This is not where I thought this story was going to go. But whenever we can, we let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? And this is how the Old Testament story of Esau is applied by this New Testament preacher. As a wise warning, not just about how we are to steward our lives in general, but specifically about how we as followers of Jesus would steward our bodies and our sexuality. So interesting. Because 
Esau's sin in Genesis 25 clearly wasn't sexual in nature, right? He just wanted a bowl of soup. But it seems to me that the author of Hebrews is saying that sometimes we can be tempted to do the same things with our bodies as Esau did with his birthright. So remember that the root of Esau's sin was that he didn't recognize how valuable his birthright was. He didn't understand how much it mattered. And so rather than being careful and wise and intentional with it, he was careless and foolish and impulsive. And we're told in the end that Esau regretted what he had done. And so it's with like parental wisdom and pastoral care that the preacher in Hebrews warns followers of Jesus not to make that same mistake when it comes to what we do with our bodies and our sexuality. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates the same passage. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. So notice how carefully and compassionately the author of Hebrews talks about this stuff. He's not coming down on his readers with judgment or with shame. He's not condemning anyone or trying to make anyone feel guilty for their mistakes. No, he's gently warning them to pay close attention to what they do with their bodies and their sexuality because these things are valuable. These things matter. They matter not just to us, but it matters to God. And because God knows us and loves us and wants what's best for us, God has given us careful instructions for how we are to steward our bodies and our sexuality. We're going to wade into this conversation for a few minutes. And I recognize how loaded and layered this topic is. Um, Here at Antioch, we don't often address issues of sex, marriage, and gender directly um, from the front. And the reason for that is because in my 24 years of pastoring, I've found that private conversations are almost always better than public declarations when it comes to caring for the delicate parts of people's lives and stories. But I also know that these are questions that all of us are asking all the time these days. And since this is where the scripture leads us this week, we're going to spend a few minutes exploring what the Bible teaches about how followers of Jesus can best steward their sexuality. All right? Back to verse 16. He says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. So when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, what's it talking about? And if there's such thing as sexual immorality, then what is sexual morality? 
Um, we've already established that there's no model marriages in Scripture. Like, other than Jesus himself, we don't have any great examples to follow in this way. So we can't base our understanding of what the Bible teaches on sex by looking at the lives of the, story, of the characters in the stories. So where do we go then? Who do we look to to figure out how the Bible defines sexual morality and immorality? Where do we look? We look to Jesus. We go to Jesus and we look at how he lived and what he taught about these things. And when you go to Jesus and you look at his teachings, what you'll find is that this is a topic he wasn't afraid to address. He spoke often about these kinds of things. In fact, he himself uses the term sexual immorality. Like in Matthew 15, for example, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus uses the term sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's porneia. And so the first thing we need to notice is that Jesus has something to say on this topic. He cares about what his followers do with their bodies. Sometimes we think, you know, God doesn't care who I sleep with as long as I'm a loving and kind person and we take care of the poor. And those are all great things to do, but if you actually listen to what Jesus says, you'll find that he does care. And in fact, here he lists sexual immorality right along with some other pretty big types of sin that are all damaging to the human soul. So the question is, when Jesus talks about sexual immorality, what's he talking about? We could ask a hundred different people how they define sexual morality or immorality, and we'd get a hundred different answers. But how does Jesus define it? Well, if we jump ahead in Matthew, just a few chapters, we get to a place where some of Jesus' opponents are grilling him about sex and marriage. Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. So interesting. When Jesus is asked about sexual morality, where does he go? He goes to Genesis 1 and 2. He quotes from the first two chapters of the Bible. Again, the only place in the entire story of the Bible where things are the way they're supposed to be. And so for Jesus, his reference point for his theology of sex and marriage isn't based on the Mosaic law or Levitical codes or anything like that, but it's based on Genesis 1 and 2. And so if our question is, how did Jesus define sexual morality? We could think about it like this. Jesus saw Genesis 1 and 2 as containing God's creational design for sex and marriage. And what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden 
is a man and a woman in a covenant union of marriage. He says, male and female, he created them, and a man will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is where Jesus starts when it comes to questions about marriage and sex. And this is where the historic Christian view comes from as well. God's creational design. So if that's sexual morality, then how would Jesus define sexual immorality? What fits in to this phrase, porneia? Well, what you notice is that in Genesis 1 and 2, we don't have a list of all the negative examples of sexual impurity. Instead, what we have is a vision of sexual purity. So what did Jesus mean by sexual immorality? Well, he meant any sexual relationship or activity outside of a man and woman in covenant marriage. You might think about it like this. All the different ways, all the different practices, all the different relationships that wouldn't fit that vision. So this is also the traditional Christian view that's been held almost universally by Christians throughout history. This is the view that I hold as well. And so if any sexual relationship or activity other than a husband and wife in, in a covenant of marriage is sexual morality, then there are countless possibilities of what this could look like. You see them all throughout the story of the Bible. You see them in every human society around the world. We have come up with all kinds of ways to be sexually immoral. Some of those ways are more obvious than others. Some are more subtle. Some are publicly celebrated. Others are locked behind closed doors. Some forms of sexual morality are actually tender and consensual. And others are abusive or violent. So it's not that all forms of sexual immorality are equal to each other. It's that nothing outside this circle is what God intended in the garden when he created humans as relational and sexual beings. So, if sexual immorality includes any sexual relationship or activity other than a man and woman in covenant marriage, and according to Jesus, that even includes lusting after someone in our heart or with our eyes, then here's my question for you. Who in this room can claim sexual morality? Who here would claim to be without sin? Who's lived their entire life perfectly inside that little circle of morality? No one. None of us. None of us can claim that we have lived a sexually moral life. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in this way. My immorality may be different than yours. Mine may be more visible than yours or more public than yours or more obvious than yours, but none of us can claim moral superiority to anyone else. Now, I may not have had sex outside of marriage, but it's not like I had a lot of offers. We have all given up our birthrights 
for a bowl of soup. We have all torn up the check and chosen the blueberry. All of us are Esau. And that's the paradoxical brilliance of Jesus' teaching on this. Because he takes sexual sin seriously. And he says it matters because it will defile your soul. And at the same time, he doesn't allow for anyone or any group of people to exclude themselves from the community of sinners. What this means is that there is no biblical basis for elevating one kind of sexual immorality to a higher level over any other. And we all know that Christians have a well-earned reputation for fearing, excluding, condemning, and demonizing certain groups of people. But Jesus doesn't teach anything like that. Instead, he asks, who wants to throw the first stone? We all have sinned. We all are like Esau. Great. So where does that leave us? Do we just acknowledge the world is broken, we all suck, and that's the way it is? Well, that's never been the invitation of the gospel. Jesus invites all of us to come to him just as we are. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. The gospel levels the playing field. We've all sinned. We all need Jesus. We all have places of guilt or shame or regret over our sexual sin. And just like Esau, we can't change what we've done. Tears or no tears. But here's the good news. God isn't nearly as concerned about where you've been as he is about where you're headed. The question isn't where you're starting from. The question is, which way are you going? You could think about it like this. Wherever you find yourself, the invitation of the gospel is that disciples of Jesus, starting from wherever they are, would move towards sexual wholeness and holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you find yourself today, whatever your life has looked like, however you identify, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, none of that defines your identity. And none of that disqualifies you from the redeeming grace of Christ. He loves you, and he wants you, and he's calling you to come and find life in his name. So I want you to know that if you're someone who's struggling with sexual sin or temptation, you're not alone, and you're welcome here. And if you today find yourself in any kind of relationship or life situation that falls outside the biblical vision, you can't change the past. So receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus and figure out where he's leading you from here. I don't know what that looks like for you, but the Spirit will lead you.
Because ultimately, the Christian life isn't about moving toward morality. It's about moving towards Jesus. It's about being with him and becoming like him. It's about being loved by him and learning to love as he loves us. The gospel isn't a call to morality, sexual or otherwise. It's a call to a person. A person who knows what it's like. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Has been tempted in every way. Every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Do you know Jesus lived 33 years as a celibate single man? And Jesus, just like every single one of us, had to deal with unwanted or unfulfilled sexual desires. He knows exactly what it's like. And yet he did not sin. So it shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus says, if we're going to, ha- if we're going to follow him, then we're going to have to get used to denying ourselves. There's a brilliant pastor in the UK named Sam Albury. And as a single man, he's committed to a life of celibacy. Here's what he says about it. As someone in this situation, what Jesus calls me to do is exactly what he calls anyone to do. I am to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. A number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. See, following Jesus isn't about self-fulfillment. It's about self-denial. It's about saying no to our strongest desires so we can say yes to our deepest desires. And that is what the Bible teaches about how we can best steward our bodies and our sexuality as a gift from God. But here's a question. What if someone disagrees with us? What if someone holds a different view than we do about marriage and sex and gender? What if somebody thinks that our view is wrong? That's okay. It really is. That's okay. Here's what I tell my kids. When it comes to living as followers of Jesus in this world, two things. Number one, we love everyone. Every single person we meet is our neighbor. 
And no matter who they are or how they look or how they identify or what they do, we treat every single person with love, respect, compassion, and kindness. No matter what, we love everyone always. And number two, we don't expect everyone to see the world the way we do. Lots of people live and believe differently than us as followers of Jesus. So we can't expect non-Christians to live according to Christian teachings. Like we have a hard enough time following Jesus and we have the spirit of God living in us. So we do our best to live what we believe and we love those who live and believe differently than we do. That's how we do it. And what about in here? I know that there are plenty of you who might disagree with something I've said today or the way I've said it. That's okay too. You're welcome here. We can still hang out. Because our hope isn't in being right or being better or winning a culture war or taking our country back, or running away and escaping from the world, our hope is in the unshakable kingdom of Jesus. And he's got this. And he's got you. So, come, say yes to this meal that he's prepared for us this morning. Amen.